My name is Jacques, for those who don't know me, one of the elders here. Um, great to have you here this morning, Mionie. Um, yeah, um, they asked that I change the tone of the way I'm preaching, so I thought this morning I'll tone it down a bit so my voice sounds a little bit different, I'm trying something new. Um, <coughs> so... This morning, um, continuing um, last session on marriage, and last week we unpacked marriage as, a, as being designed for companionship out of Genesis 1 and 2. Welcome to go and listen to that. And this morning we're continuing looking at um, marriage being designed as a reflection of the love of God through Jesus Christ to his bride, that's us. So, looking forward to take you through that. My voice never broke when I was a teenager, so maybe it breaks this morning, so then you can rejoice with me. <clears throat> so, but to start, I thought I just want to crack one or two marriage jokes, but I also realized a lot of them are not really ones that I would want to share. Not because they're vulgar in a way, but just because sometimes they speak of a reality that's unfortunately true in some cases, but not really kingdom, I guess, but so these ones, uh, I thought they were funny, so I'll share one or two. So marriage is when a man and a woman become one, but trouble starts when they try to decide which one. <laughs> and then last one, one of Debbie's own, so you know about the three rings in marriage, you have the engagement ring. Then the wedding ring, and then the suffering. <laughs> um, so with that, with suffering, obviously marriage is amazing in a Christian context because although one might say there's not a lot of verses that speaks directly to marriage, the whole gospel, everything speaks to marriage. Marriage is sometimes tough because it tests all the facets of life in one. It's like you bring everything you have and you put it on the table and it all gets tested with, uh, um, what's an enlargement glass? A groot glass. Magnifying glass. Yes, that was a prepared joke. Um, so, I mean, if we, if we look at marriage, we know of a term like love. We know of a lot of the terms that's actually general for Christians. If you look at the Bible, it's biblical Christianity that just says, yes, take everything you've learned from Christ and you're following of Christ and take that into marriage. But then it gets tested for real because suddenly you're in close proximity with one another. There's nothing to hide. And you realize what a sinner your spouse actually is. Um, and that can be, um, obviously, that, that's, I guess, to an extent where the suffering starts because your spouse happens to see the same things, also realizes what a sinner you've been all this time. And the problem is that sometimes it still persists, and it's obviously a process of sanctification and of us becoming more like Christ. And marriage is that perfect place where all of that comes together or... Um, place where we still need sanctification, still need to become like Jesus gets pointed out to us regularly, or we become more aware of it. 
Um, but at the same time, in our world we're living, there's a secular agenda that's completely against marriage. Because marriage represents the image of God, the Imago Dei, and it's out there to destroy the image of God um, in marriage and just in humanity as a whole. And we find ourselves sometimes taking up some of those postures or beliefs that secular, um, some of the secular agendas influence the church and our thinking without us knowing it. Um, like I mentioned, obviously marriage is a place where everything comes together in life, so we would say that we have marriage problems, but like someone once said, it's not that we have marriage problems, we have character problems. It's our own brokenness that all of us have, and we bring it, and we might think we, uh, you know, we have one or two things to deal with, but suddenly in the context of marriage, we realize how many there are, and how deep it is, and how persistent um, it might be, and it points to our own brokenness and need for a savior, um, but we can't save ourselves. The Bible begins with a wedding, and it ends with a wedding, and through the whole Bible, we see that continually the big role um, marriage plays in displaying God's love for his people in the Old Testament, um, Israel, the nation of Israel, he speaks a lot about how um, he's, the, um, he's the husband of an unfaithful wife in most cases. If you go read, I think it's Ezekiel 16 speaks about it, Isaiah 2, um, beautiful parts that speak about that, which we won't be going in in that detail today. Um, but I think by spoiler alert is that, I mean, marriage, basic marriage problems comes down to our own brokenness and our own selfishness. But at the same time, it's encouraging then to, I mean, I think it's Tim Keller, he writes, he says, through marriage, we understand the gospel and through the gospel, we understand marriage and all those principles um, come together within marriage. I would like us to go to Matthew, that first verse. Read it for us. And I would want us to discuss it for a, a minute. Then Jesus told his disciples, if any of you would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So we see that in following Jesus, we need to lay down our lives to follow him. So if we say we, we follow Jesus in getting married or we're going to follow Jesus in get, getting married, we can see that it's going to require us to lay down our lives as part of it. In John 12 verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So I want you to maybe two by two or three by three, just discuss, is this true? If you think about marriage, do you think it it's a, would be a valid saying to say that you need to die to self when going into marriage? And then whatever your answer is, why? So give you a minute to discuss that among yourselves.
you can wrap it there. Anyone get interesting answers? Alice, what did Harry and Ninka say? I heard you laugh a lot. So. Oh. Okay. <laughs> but we were dead in sin before that, right? Um, I heard that uh, when you get married, half of you dies. And when you get children, the other half dies. I don't know if that's true. Okay. But I think the idea of dying to self is obviously not a popular belief when we think about marriage we'll get to that want to recap a little bit of what we discussed last week because i think some of the things would play a, uh, a role so just if we go through some of those verses in genesis i'm going to go through it quite briefly but just we discussed in verse uh, genesis 1 26 27 we spoke about being made in the image of god and that is where we get our ultimate value where we don't get our value from the fact of the status of our relationships, that we're married, still looking to get married in a relationship, not in a relationship, engaged. Those, those are gifts from God, things that we get to steward, and very important once we get it. Those are not the things that give us inherent value. It's the fact that we were created in the image of God, in His likeness He made. Male and female. It's not only male that was created in his image. If we read it like that, it looks like collectively we were made in his image. Distinct, um, but male and female bringing characteristics um, of God in, in that sense. And that, we, uh, and that we've been created to, to find fellowship, purpose, and um, joy in God, the Father and the Son. And we were not meant, we were created to worship God. We were made in His image. We weren't created to run after idols, whether it's work, success, sex, spouse, money, whatever. Some of the things like that Diabia mentioned this morning, those things cannot fill a God-shaped hole. And many times when we come to marriage, we want to fill a God-shaped hole with our spouse or the idea of marriage, but it's it's impossible task because they weren't made to fill that. Only God can fill that. Um, in verse 28, we saw the combined instruction for male and female to um, be fruitful and multiply. We said that sex is good within marriage. It's a celebration. It's something to be enjoyed and celebrated. Um, and through that, we also carry out um, that, that first commandment. In Genesis 2 verse 18, we saw that God created, um, so we said Genesis 1 is the first creation story. Genesis 2 has parts filling in some of the gaps that Genesis 1 didn't explicitly say. And so also the creation of a woman. And we saw that God um, made, he saw that man was alone and he said it was not good. It was the first time he said something is not good. He created the whole creation, but at that stage he said it's not good for man to be alone. 
um, and he created a helper. Now, that word helper um, is used in the Bible to describe God himself. So it's not, a, um, it's not a helper in the sense of just a, I don't know what the right would be, a random addition, but God, it's in some places used to describe God himself as the helper. And other times it's used to describe military help, reinforcement, without which a battle would be lost. So it's not a, a lesser being being created. We're created in equal value. And then back in Genesis 1 verse 31, we saw that God said after he created man and woman, he said it was very good. After each day he said what he created was good, but after he created male and female, he said it was very good. So God uh, delighted in the fact that he created male and female, and then we saw in Genesis 24 to 25, um, the first marriage ceremony almost being explained um, by Moses, saying, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So just for principles that's important to take from that, is um, a man shall leave his father and his mother leaving. So you leave your mother and your father's house. If God wanted to create Adam a mother and a father at that stage, he probably would have, but he fought well to create um, a wife. And that's a primary relationship. Marriage is a primary relationship. Um, it's an exclusive relationship. We, in the marriage ceremony... Um, so you, you leave all others. Um, you, you're not going to pursue emotional um, relationships with the same sex anymore in that way. If you've had, you, it's, a, it's a primary relationship with your spouse that you're going to pursue. That's the cleaving to his wife that we see there. And we also know that that's a permanent relationship, although in a secular sense, that feels limiting to have a permanent relationship. We see that God designed marriage to be a permanent relationship. And then also we see that they became one flesh. Um, and that just emphasizes the sexual union. And we see in Corinthians that Paul actually went so far to say that with whomever you sleep with, you become one with. And so it's not just a on the surface, physical um, act that happens, but there's emotional, relational oneness that also occurs. And then after that, in Genesis 3, the fall happened, which obviously where sin entered, and that also had an uh, effect on marriage, um, which then also, just as man had to be redeemed, we can say, follow that through and say that marriage had to be redeemed. So, where are we at? Let's start with our starting point. Um, I have a slide there. I thought that's almost like I didn't draw it with my, my own hands. I had Ger draw it for me. Thanks, Ger. It's really amazing. I, I would have thought you could do better, but hey, that's, that's okay. Um, so just like when you're in a mall um, and you think, where are you, so that you can get to your destination, right? Otherwise, you have this big map of a mall, but if you don't know where you are in context of it, it's difficult to work through it, um, to, to navigate almost to where we're going. 
So we mentioned, um, just with or something to mention, is that nothing can mature character like marriage. We've mentioned that um, that's maybe where the suffering part comes in, in terms of that one joke, but it's an accountability platform like no other because you see each other continually in different places. You get to know each other in quite a close proximity. Um, and where you can pretend in many other cases, it becomes much more difficult within the context of marriage. And it exposes our weakness and it confronts us with the reality of our sin, our brokenness, and our need for sanctification. I mean, many times we would be surprised ourselves to think, hey, I thought I'm a follower of Christ, but looking at my behavior doesn't align with my intention. And there's some sanctification needed in becoming more like Jesus. But society's focus is not becoming more like Jesus. We all know that. The focus is on mostly individual fulfillment, a.k.a. selfishness. Um, the Bible speaks of that. In the end times, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 12, he said, and because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will draw cold. And like I said earlier, I mean, there's a lot of principles that's true in many scenarios, but I think even becomes more true, if you would like to say that, within marriage. And individualism and consumerism is seen as important values by our society. And I love that verse that Thiebia, um referred to in 1 John 2 verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And it's this, on the one side, a warning of the things of the world. But on the other side, we also see that the things of God endures forever. Obviously, we won't be married in heaven one day, but there's a, a pureness about it. Um, the thing about, if you want to say, culture you see individualism and consumer as a prevailing culture amongst us. It's like a story um, of two fish swimming in a river. And there was this frog on the outside asking them, hey, how does the water feel? And the two fish looked at each other and they asked, what is water? See, we become so used to the culture and things around us that we can't distinguish between it. And the problem is that with things like individualism or consumerism become so part of our thinking that we struggle to distinguish between what is true biblically and what's God's desires and will for us and what is just um, culture. So culture sees the freedom of an individual to choose life that most fulfills him or her. Marriage has been redefined in that sense as finding emotional and success sexual fulfillment and self-actualization. So in that, in that context, we can start thinking of marriage of becoming a platform where I can become my best self, where inevitably I would be served and my purposes and will would almost be served. And self-actualization, obviously speaking to continually growing and becoming our best self, 
And marriage has been taken out of its purpose of reflecting God's nature, producing character by becoming holy and raising children. Marriage used to be about us, but now it's about me. So we start looking for that perfect soulmate. Um, how does that look? We want a spouse that should be fun, intellectually stimulating, sexually attractive. We should have many common interests. And they should understand my current scenario and decisions and support my goals. It's all about life goals. You see, it all becomes about me, which even makes it more difficult then to find that right spouse because we live in this idealistic world of a right spouse should tick all these boxes um, and thinking about how it would serve us. So marriage then in that sense becomes self-fulfillment and no longer requires self-denial. If we look at that verse that we had on there, maybe we can go back to that one, that one Matthew and John, second one. But just speaks to that unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it will remain alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Well, that's actually telling. Um, I mean, and that's the gospel. That's not marriage. That's just how life and the gospel work. But we see that the effect that it can have on us. And in that sense, when marriage becomes a place of focusing on self-fulfillment, we require no or low-maintenance partners. We want someone that can take us as we are, shouldn't be a high-maintenance, and that should almost make no claims on us. Um, which is impossible to find, right? Because there's no one there. It's like they said of church, um, if you find the perfect church, it would no longer be perfect because you are there. And it's the same with marriage. If you find the perfect spouse, your marriage would no longer be perfect because you are now part of it. Um, and we would like to live in this idealistic world of thinking, no, no, you just don't understand. I'm different, but we're not different. We're all fallen. We're all broken. And then when we get, and even when we then get marriage, we take that idea into marriage and then we start finding problems with our marriage. But like I mentioned, it's maybe more character problems. And it points to the self-centeredness within our hearts that makes us blind. We start seeing after a while our spouse's problems and everything that's wrong with them, not realizing or maybe then realizing to our dismay that they're seeing the same of us. But the gospel heals us of self-centeredness. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 15, it says, He died so that we might no longer live for ourselves. And we then see in those verses that's up on the screen, for whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And I think that's a big thing when we think about marriage and how marriage should work and love and who should submit to whom. All those things almost become minor items because sometimes we major on the minor instead of, um, yeah, we major on the minor things rather than majoring on the major things. The most important thing is to keep the most important thing, the most important thing. If we, 
go on. And now we can start with the sermon. Thanks for the intro. Um, I'll try and keep it quick. So when we read Ephesians 5, um, especially from verse 22, it's a part that we all know and I think can many times trigger us in certain ways because we think about all the roles and who should do it first, like Gary and Ninka said, who should die first, um, it, and it's a natural thing. We, we need to just read that in context of Ephesians, of, well, at least the part just before that, and then obviously the whole Bible, but we're not going to read the whole Bible this morning. But Ephesians 5, that's two, you skipped a little bit low. Is, did I put Ephesians 5 as 1 on there? Yeah. No, that's 25. Maybe I didn't put it on just before that. Yeah, perfect. So, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We see there, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. Why I'm pointing this out, because when we look at the part about marriage, it speaks about you should submit as the church submits to Christ and the husband should love as Christ. So it's important then just to look at the rest of Scripture and also say where it compares then as Christ. And we can see here that all of us should love as Christ. It's that sacrificial love of giving ourselves up um, in that identity. Don't think I put verse 15 to 21 on the screen, but that's a part just before, and I'll read it to you. Um, where he goes on and he says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we see the prelude, if you want to call it that, to that part, speaks about being filled to the Spirit. And we cannot approach Christian marriage out of a flesh sounds obvious, but sometimes it's not that obvious to God created it that, I mean, as followers of Christ, dying to self, we need to realize that we need to walk in the spirit when we come together. Um, we need to have the spirit lead us in our everyday things. I mean, we can make a list of rules and laws to follow and big principles and, and all that, but in the end, we need to be filled to the Spirit. Um, I don't have a picture of a triangle next, is it? Okay, perfect. Um, and just that, I showed this last week as well, but we can see, if you think of a triangle, the distance between a husband and a wife become closer as they draw closer to the top point, which is Jesus. So as we seek Jesus, we become closer to each other. 
um, in the context of marriage and the onus is when on us to seek God. It's our responsibility, each one's responsibility to seek God and cultivate intimacy with Jesus um, because unless a grain of wheat, I mean, unless you die to self, you're going to lose your life. That's basically the premise of, of Scripture. So it's as easy and odd as that. I mean, we can stop there and say this basically explains everything, but the Bible goes further in and unpacking that for us. But like I mentioned, people do not have marriage problems, they have character problems. So, and in that sense, our character obviously crumbles when we start trying to have expectations of marriage that was meant to be fulfilled by God and Jesus himself. So just like marriage or just like church, marriage can either be heaven on earth, but on the other side it can also be hell on earth. Because we're sinful people that's in it, but it's through the Holy Spirit that it can be a place of flourishing um, and become heaven. So we have to learn to serve one another by the power of the Spirit. Only through this can you face the challenges of marriage. Not even through smart EQ tests and personality type things. I love those things. But they still don't change my heart. I still remain selfish. I, even though I understand everything of how Nita works and I can point out why she does what she does now and why she's angry is because her personality type, this and that. The, the fact is... That's not how God created it primarily to work. Um, and the standard is Christ. Christ is the standard. Um, we, and then if we, we can go to the next verse, we're not going to start reading it immediately. But um, Paul chose not to use the first Adam as the context to explain marriage, but the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who overcame sin. So Christ is our example for marriage. Now, if you go back, I think you skipped a few verses, maybe 22, it's the red ones. Um, I've highlighted for this first part as we go through, just to see what does it say about Jesus um, and his bride, and that we focus on that as an example, and then we'll come back to husband and wife. Um, I think you'll need, we're on it just now. Yeah, perfect. So, wives submit to your husband as, wives submit to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of a wife, even as Christ is the head of a church. His body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Let's keep it there. Um, so a big thing that we see there is as Christ is the head of the church. Now headship, and we'll unpack it a little bit more later, but um, speaks to the authority that Jesus has to guide the church, um, his fullness to provide, his ability to provide, and protection amongst other things. And then we also see, so his head, see it as leader, um, but we also see that it says that he's savior. 
So it speaks to his unconditional love. Um, for while we were still sinners, at the right time Christ died for us. Romans 5 verse 8. So it was an unconditional love while his bride was sinning. If we read it in that, we're still sinners. Christ died. So it's that unconditional love. And we know that Jesus suffered. But we read in Hebrews 12 verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We see that the joy that was set before Jesus was the bride of Christ being sanctified, that she would become filled with the splendor and holiness of the church so that he might be praised. Um, if we go to the next verse, so, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with a word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So, Christ's purpose was to perfect the church, to perfect his bride, not that the bride, it was not the bride who made herself presentable. That's quite amazing. It was not the bride that first prepared herself and got herself ready. Ezekiel 16 has this whole story where it unpacks that quite beautifully. We see that unconditional servantship um, by Jesus. And it's the bridegroom who labors to beautify her in order to present her. To himself. So that is what Jesus is doing for the church. He is beautifying his bride to present him to herself. It's an unconditional self-sacrificing love. His love and self-sacrificing for her, cleansing and sanctifying by her are all designed for her liberation and perfection so that she should come to her full glory. We see that is the example that uh, Paul sets before us. And if we go on to the next verse, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, and he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. It's amazing to think you are part of the body of Christ. I mean, Christ is the head, and you are part of his body loves you because he died for you but you are also part of his body and and like we see there he nourishes and cherishes it you're not gonna cut off your own foot at any stage um, you are part of Christ's body and then if we go on Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife and let the wife see that she respect her husband. So when it says this mystery is profound, it, it's not in the sense of it not being understood, but it's a formally concealed but now revealed mystery. The Old Testament wasn't completely revealed, but through the coming of Christ, that mystery has been revealed. 
We cannot get a higher calling than displaying Christ and the church through marriage. It's almost, if you think of that being part of marriage or just marriage, is a high calling to display the love of Christ and the church. We see in this Jesus' sacrificial authority in terms of serving and preparing the bride, but we also see his sacrificial submission to the will of the Father. Now, if we take that and we go on to the next verse, we're going to read it from the point of view of just getting practical, not practical, but just taking it to husbands and wives. Um, but before we get to, to that, something that I, I mean, when we look at wives submit to your husbands, husband loves your wives, it can almost naturally just become that thing of, right and wrong, who's going to do it first. Um, and that reminded me of that Old Testament um, when Solomon saw two women that came to him and said, hey, each one said it's their baby. And then what Solomon did is he said, okay, let's cut the baby in half and split it. And then both of you can, could have a half. And then they realized, okay, the one whose real child it was said, please don't cut it in half, she can have it. And it's almost that dynamic for me when we look at this. If we start looking at it from a point of view of, okay, who's going to die self? Am I going to be a submissive wife? Um, only once my husband actually walks in the love of Christ, the sacrificial love of Christ, or would the husband say that, I'll show this sacrificial love of Christ once she starts um, behaving in a submissive way. And we see that although that triggers, we lose the plot in terms of walking in the spirit and walking in love. It's no longer about walking in love. We make it a law that doesn't require the spirit's leading almost. It's almost we just want to know who's right and wrong. Don't really want to know what is the spirit saying in this scenario. And that's not the way to go. So if we read this, I'm going to leave the sub, um, submit part to last. So wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So the three things we're going to unpack is um, submission, headship, and love. So starting with headship speaks to the authority to lead. And for us as men, I think it's important to recognize the responsibility to represent Christ in this way when leading. We see in other verses at the same time when we think of what does headship mean, um, that the husband is also the brother and bondservant of his wife, if you um, use scripture to interpret scripture. But unfortunately, this has been misrepresented in the past. We're all well aware that unfortunately, by the headship of men, because men was obviously in most positions, it, um, women were marginalized. And it's understandable the pain that, that almost comes from that. But if we look at Jesus, he brought a new way in terms of leading. Jesus, in his sacrificial um, way of authority, he says in Mark 10, verse 42 to 45, I don't think I have it on the screen. Um, 
you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over themselves, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be the first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. almost want to say you can use that, husbands, as a blueprint for what it means to be, um, what does headship, authority, how Jesus um, sees that, and almost rewrote it. He, does, he did not come to be served, but to serve. I mean, many times we see this picture of a passive man that no longer sits on a couch waiting to be served rather than to serve. And that's not the way Jesus um, told us to, to go about it. So husbands are to use their authority and power to express love that does not stop at dying for the beloved. You can see that there's a focus on love, on giving. And, I mean, again, for us as men to walk this out, we can actually not do it on our own strength. We know about our selfishness. We spoke about that. We need to run to Jesus. Through him, we can get that. Then if we go on in Ephesians 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of her word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So, love your wives. Um, I mean, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4 speaks about being patient and kind, um, not arrogant or rude not insisting on your own way, not being irritable or resentful, not rejoicing at wrongdoing, but rejoicing with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And we can see the husband being required to take up this role of loving, loving his wife in that manner as well. And that is a model of Christ and the church um, it's the role that a husband and wife then plays out by loving one another as Christ loved us, but especially then the husband, um, in that sense, taking lead. So we see that the standard of love was set by Christ. It was not set on the, what the wife did or didn't do or whether she fulfilled her part of a role. We see unconditional love means unconditional. It's without condition. Um, and we saw that Christ loved us while we were still sinners. And then if we say that Jesus is our example, we're called to love from that place. So Jesus was sinless, spotless, yet he gave himself up, and he had every reason to be conditional, but he gave himself. And that, man, is our example to walk by. If we... Go to the last part. Um, that's not the last, but the first is um, submission. So we see there that wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of a wife, even as Christ is the head of a church, the body, and is himself its savior. Now, submission, I 
mentioned earlier, submission helper um, can sometimes feel uh, almost as a photography um, feel to it in, in, a, in a general sense. And it's something that, yeah, you, like I mentioned, for practical reasons, people almost have a negative connotation. But the word helper, like I mentioned, was used to describe God himself. So it's definitely not a, a lesser being. And um, to submit is also something that Jesus did. Because any sacrificial submission, if we uh, read Philippians 2, we see how Jesus, I actually have it here, and I'll read it to you. Um, so Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So we see Jesus humbled himself and became a servant. He also fell under the submission of a father. So just as um, 1 Corinthians 11 speaks about just the fact that um, the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Christ also submits under the Father, um, just as the man, the husband, submits under um, Jesus, uh, as the church submits under Jesus, so the wife submits to the, to the husband. So what does submission mean? Let's discuss that a little bit. Um, so, sorry, I just want to get my note. Exactly. Okay, so submission is an attitude. Um, it's a. Don't want to say it's not. It's not a feeling, but it's the. I just need to get my words here. Did you say something? Um, so, sorry. Uh, let me just say what submission does not mean. It doesn't mean looking less capable. So it's not about being less or capping yourself, looking less smart so that you can submit on your husband. Also to mention, it doesn't speak about, in this context, submission to men. It says submit to your husband. Um, it's not about staying quiet. But it's also not about your personality type, whether you're an introvert or extrovert doesn't mean, okay, you're capable of being submissive because you're an introvert and you just like to stay quiet. It's not about that. It's also not turning off your brain. It's not thinking for yourself, just doing what you're said and here's your to-do list and, and just do it. It's not that. Um, it's also not blind obedience. There's a difference between obeying and submitting. Um, in Ephesians 6, it's about, it says, children obey your parents um, so obeying without questioning, while submission is willingly being placed under authority. So just like Jesus willingly submitted to the Father, so you get to play Jesus' role in that sense of willingly submitting to the um, headship of your husband. And in that sense, it's trusting him. It's an attitude 
sorry, my, I'm not getting the right word there, but it's a attitude or in almost a direction. It's the way in which you are submissive. It's not the fact of staying quiet and, okay, you're staying quiet, you're not arguing, but at the same time, um, you almost have a passive-aggressive um, approach to it. It's, it's about trusting God in that as well. So, by trusting your husband, you're actually trusting God. You're not putting your trust in your husband as the ultimate person, but in Jesus still. Um, yeah. Sorry, I just want to check that I don't miss something. Um, Another just uh, uh, example of submission was Daniel um, and his friends when um, they were told to worship one of the other gods. We saw that Daniel and his friends or his friends still spoke respectfully to the king saying that they're not going to do what, of, what is required of them because it's sin, it's against the word. And in the same way, a submissive heart is truthful but respectful doesn't mean you do what you say. It doesn't mean you can't question something. But obviously it's the heart from, it's a submissive heart. That's a word that I were looking for. It's to come from a place of having a submissive heart. And obviously for that, um, it's trusting in God's work in your husband's life. And not, it's not that your self focus is on your husband and trusting him. It's you're trusting God. Um, knowing that his ways would n neither be dangerous or demeaning for you. Awesome. And it's with that that I would want to close. So we all have had different experiences in terms of this, and it's obviously in a very brief moment that I ran through quite a few things. But I want us to... Um, France, you can... On Stockel. Um, but just to, we can just sit for a minute while you worship, and I just want you to check your heart on the following things that maybe was highlighted to you by the Spirit. The whole thing of selfishness is that real? Yes, it's real. You should treat it as cancer when you look at marriage. Um, as a primarily thing to be rooted out, almost focusing on your own selfishness and your requirements. And then, where there's anything else that was highlighted, just to speak to God to that, about that. So just as we take a minute, we can worship. Um, if someone wants to pray, please come and we'll be here to pray. But I just want you to acknowledge whatever you felt while I was preaching. Maybe you were reminded about feelings of anger. Maybe you were reminded of fears or whatever it might be. Just acknowledge that to God. And I think for us, the thing would be to, to willingly, for all of us, to submit to God's ways and choose His ways and trust Him. Although it might be scary or intimidating, um, but to lean into Him in that. Seek what is the Spirit telling us in this. So maybe just as we, we can switch off the lights and just take a minute just to, in solitude, um, just wait on God.
Father, as we just 